This is Friends of Foster Care, a podcast sponsored by Fostering Hope Catawba. Fred Rogers said, We live in a world in which we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say, it's not my child, not my community, not my problem. Then there are those who see the need and respond. I consider those people my heroes. Our host, Leanne Setliff, is a seasoned foster parent hero in Catawba County through the Department of Social Services. Over 26 children have found a home with her and her husband. Two of these children they adopted. Now, Leanne is on a journey to tell the story of fostering children in Western North Carolina. It's certainly not always easy, but we are in need of heroes chronicled here to show that we are part of the solution in our community. Let's listen in. episode of Friends of Foster Care, I'm excited to welcome my friend Megan. Megan is a social worker as well as a foster adoptive parent. So Megan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, So Megan and I met. Megan um, has now taken a new job, but her previous job and the reason that we met was she was the foster uh, and adoptive parent recruiter and trainer. Um, and she started that job in 2015, uh, 14, 2014. Okay. And I, um, what part of that job is to recruit foster and adoptive, uh, parents. And so Megan created a list of churches to begin reaching out to churches and going to, to them and talking about foster care, um, to them. And so she came to the church that I was working at and had a meeting with me and the associate pastor. I was the children's pastor at the time, and she went over all the things that she was looking for in church partnership and that type of thing. And, and then I said, I, I have my own questions. And I started talking to her about how to become foster parents, how to become a foster parent in Catawba County. And so later, Megan often jokes that she's known from that meeting that um, this was going to be much more than just a church partnership. Um, but I'm really grateful, um, that from that meeting, we have become friends, um, as well as Megan, uh, recruited and licensed Luke and I to become foster parents. So that is how we met. Um, and I love that story. So Megan, as a social worker, you worked closely like I just explained, um, with the community partners and then the churches um, for connections and for recruitment um, to train the parents, but also for volunteer, um, for donations, right? Um, you became the person who connect donations to kids in foster care. Um, so what were two or three of the ways that you kind of created to connect with churches in the area in that position? So when I started my job, like you said, I spent the time trying to create a master list of all the churches in Catawba County. Um, and, and I probably missed some. And even with probably missing some, I had over 300 churches listed just in our county. So I started, you know, trying to hit some of the bigger churches, churches that maybe we'd worked with a little bit in the past, trying to meet with them, do presentations. And I quickly realized there was one of me and there's no way that I could hit every church. Um, Even if I went to a church every week, there's no way I could even get to all these churches. Um, And the fact that I would like to go to my own church sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I came up with the idea of foster care Sunday. Um, We put that in May for foster care awareness month. Um, Essentially the, the idea was to put, the put the power back on the churches um, give them the information they need to talk about foster care to recruit foster families from their church and put that power back with them to do that in their own congregations in their own way in their own style so i reach out to churches um, give them announcements options give them bulletin inserts if they request them give them video lists of of things they could show 
essentially just ask them in some way to talk about foster care on this particular Sunday in May. Um, started that, when did I start that? I think I started that in 2015 or 16. Eh, it all runs together. Um, and that has just grown every year. Um, we usually have anywhere from 75 to 100 churches participate. And um, when you think about the average size of a congregation, I mean, you're looking at thousands of people on that particular Sunday hearing about foster care, which is awesome. So created that. And then a little over a year later, um, also started prayer Sunday in November. So my thinking there um, was that's awesome that churches are hearing about us in May, but we want people to think about the foster care uh, need more than just once a year. So November is National Adoption Month, six months after Foster Care Sunday. So it kind of worked out for it to be that halfway point to put it back on people's radar. And this one, we reach out to churches and say, no strings attached. All we're asking you to do is pray. Pray for our children in care. Pray for our foster adoptive families, kinship families. Pray for birth parents and judges and social workers and guardian ad litems and all the people involved in child welfare. Um, and we don't usually have as many churches participate in that as we do Foster Care Sunday, but we usually have around 50 churches do Prayer Sunday in November. Um, and then also over the years, as I talked with different churches and met community members and went to businesses and civic groups, um, as people told me they wanted to help and be involved, I said, well, can I put your name and email down on a listserv? Um, and that has evolved into a pretty good size listserv where whenever we have a need um, that we cannot meet or if Fostering Hope doesn't have the resources already to meet, we can email that listserv and usually get almost all of our needs met for our children in care and our foster adoptive and kinship families. Um, so that's been awesome just to, it's been able to connect the community directly with the needs that we have at DSS. That's amazing. I love that you have built into the churches and, and tell me, you like to tell me that there are, how many years does it take for a seed to be planted to be a foster parent? Research shows that it takes about two to three years of thinking about becoming a foster adoptive parent before families will actually take that first step. Um, and we have found that to be true just anecdotally with people coming in. They'll tell us they started thinking about it two years ago or three years ago, um, or it's that they grew up knowing they wanted to do this and they were just waiting for that right time. So we have seen, um, definitely seen the fruit of the labor with Foster Care Sunday and Prayer Sunday. Um, the biggest, one of our biggest referral sources for families um, the past few years has been churches. And I, I would like to think it's because the information has been presented more and more and more people from the churches are aware of the need. That's great. And I, you know, as a, I've just now kind of realized and understood that um, why there's a need for constant recruitment. So in the state of North Carolina, the, the limit of children in a home, in a licensed foster home, um, is five. So that's five, five children total, biological, adopted, and foster. And so um, you have families who are um, adoptive families, and they take a child, and then they close. And so you also have families who um, foster, like my husband and I have fostered, and we, um, we've been fostering for four years, and we're about to adopt our third child. So, you know, we only have two more spots in our home um, for long-term permanent placements um, mm -hmm. and we'll have to close. And so there's always this constant need to continue to recruit foster and adoptive parents um, because there's unfortunately always kids coming into care. Um, and so that's a, a big piece. I didn't quite understand that piece um, until recently. And so, Anyway, so that is great. And um, so the part of that job we talked about was uh, it kind of morphed right into recruiter, trainer, and then donations, right? Or, or community. Right. 
And so part of that was also Christmas wishes. Um, and that was, that's what you've told me before, one of your favorite parts of, of the job, right? So will you tell me a little bit about Christmas wishes? This, this podcast will come out in December, um, real close to Christmas. Um, unfortunately, Christmas wishes is done in October, November. Um, and so this will be on people's radars for next Christmas. Um, but will you tell me a little bit about Christmas wishes and what that looks like? Yeah, so this program has been around for long before me. Um, the We kind of had our, it was established and it is a well-oiled machine. Um, so what we do is we take every single child who is in foster care in Catawba County. Um, we get an individualized wish list directly from the foster adoptive parents, kinship parents, or the child themselves if they're older. And that and is, that is a child who is in the custody of Catawba right. County. Right. They don't have to live in Catawba County if they're Correct. somewhere else, if there's not a home for them in Catawba County. They're just in the custody of Catawba County. That's right. So all of our kids in our care, they're, we will provide no matter where they're living at. Even We even have some kids out of state. Um, so we take every child, we get those individualized wish lists, and then we recruit um, donors or sponsors for the program who will sponsor a tag. So every child actually has three tags that goes out into the community. And that's just to make sure that every child receives enough to create, you know, a good substantial Christmas gift. Um, and we give lots of different options of things they can buy. So we actually don't really have an issue with duplicates usually. Um, and that also allows people to sponsor tags without having to spend a significant amount. So we ask that donor spend $30 to $50 per tag. So if you're looking at, let's say, 300 children in care, um, that's three donors each. So we usually have well over 900 individuals taking these tags. Now, usually they're grouped by church or business or family um, and that makes it easier. You know, one church will take 20 to 30 tags or um, there's some businesses locally that will take hundreds of tags. That does make it easier. Um, but the donors will shop for those gifts. And then starting next week, we actually get a U-Haul, drive all over the county to all of our donors, pick up these gifts, or some donors will bring it straight to our warehouse um, we have a warehouse that we're allowed to use free of charge um, off Tate Boulevard. We get all the gifts. We look through them, make sure everything's appropriate. We document everything that the child gets. Um, and then we prepare the final gift that's going to that child. We'll check, you know, we'll check clothing sizes, make sure everything's correct. If they did get two duplicates, a lot of times we'll give them both. Like if they get two basketballs, you know, we're going to give them two basketballs. Um, if they get the exact same toy twice, we may pull one out and and get something from our extras table to replace it. So, um, but in the end, every child will have a, a final big Christmas bag ready to go with all their gifts. And we have pickup day where our foster adoptive kinship families can come pick up. Or if they live out of the area, a lot of our social workers will take those gifts and deliver them to the families. So it is an awesome program. It is amazing to see um, when you're in that warehouse and you look around and it is wall to wall Christmas gifts and bicycles and big wheels and dollhouses. Like it is just an amazing thing to see. That's awesome. Um, I love volunteering for Christmas wishes. Um, and it's just fun, and it's it's fun to to know that each kid in care has a name and is cared for um, by so many people, um, including people they've never met. So that's really cool. Do you have any um, fun stories about Christmas wishes or a, a fun um, thing that you've seen over the year? So the, um, the recruiter trainer, so it was previously me, now it's Ashley. Um, that's the person who coordinates all of this. But it's the family builders team, the adoption foster home licensing team at DSS that our team kind of takes ownership of that um, with the recruiter trainer being the point person. So our team family builders, we are like a big family and we have a lot of fun at the warehouse. It is one of the highlights, I think, of all of our year. Um, 
we have Christmas candy, we have music. Um, uh, our U-Haul drivers, the workers that will volunteer to drive the U-Haul and pick up the gifts every year. Um, Bernie and Diego will put uh, Christmas tutus on and Santa hats and drive around and pick up gifts. Um, and it's kind of a running joke that one of our workers, Hendrix, will drive a bicycle off the U-Haul ramp every year and we video it I and mean, we just have a good time with it. Um, and it makes a job that's really hard sometimes. It just yeah. the bright spot of our year. I bet. And I think um, I was there one year when Hendrix um, <laughs> the bicycle off the U-Haul um, because that's another thing that's donated is every kid in child in care who wants, has one requested gets a bicycle, right? That's right. So in addition to the three donors, um, if a child or placement tells us that the kid wants a bicycle, uh, we actually get those donated separate. So William Sonoma is a really big donor for those. They've given us 50 bicycles every year for as long as I've been doing it. And I know they were doing it before that. Um, and I know they're the employees at Williams Sonoma there in Claremont. I think they raise money for that all year long to buy those bicycles because they do 50 bicycles and 50 helmets, which is, I mean, that's a pretty good chunk of change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, my son got a big wheel last year, um, and that is his favorite toy to ride, and it's not a bicycle, it's his motorcycle. <laughs> he rides all the time, and so every time he rides his motorcycle, I, I think about Christmas wishes and, and other people's generosity. So. Well, the big wheels and the tricycles usually come from the Catawba Valley Association of Realtors. They like to, to sponsor those for us, and then Williams-Sonoma usually does the the bigger bikes for like four-year-olds and up. That's awesome. So as a social worker, um, do you have any kind of wisdom or um, nugget of, or per, even a different perspective to share um, with the listeners about um, that side of foster care um, versus the foster parent side of foster care, the community side of foster care? I would say as a social worker that it takes time to work a case and build the evidence either towards reunification or towards adoption or guardianship or whatever that permanent plan may be. Um, and on the social worker side, six months to a year of a case flies by. But when you're a foster parent and you live it and you live in the uncertainty every day, that feels like an eternity. So whereas a foster parent is chomping at the bit at six months to know how this case is going to end, for a foster care social worker, that's not even close to getting us to where we need to be to figure out what permanency is going to be. So as a social worker, I will say time is different when you're a social worker versus the foster parent, and it takes time. Um, and if the birth parents are not successfully working towards reunification, you have, even if it seems cut and dry to a foster parent, you still have to give them the time that the law permits to, to try to work that case. Um, and so I think that would be the main thing is just, it's just a different perspective on time from being a social worker, from being a foster parent. Well, I think that's helpful too. Um, because it's a reminder that these these children and these families, like I said earlier, are are people with names and stories. Mm -hmm. and so in order, foster care is so that in place, so the child could have a safe place to stay. And so it, it might take time to figure out where that safe place is going to be, and whether it's going to be with the birth family or it's going to be in a different setting for the rest of their life. I mean, we're not talking we're talking about the rest of their lives here. We're not just talking about the six months. But yeah, as a foster parent, it seems to drag very slowly by. Um, but it's also a good reminder that I, I often think as a foster parent, like this is the only case that I'm really worried about. But a social worker has a, a caseload of probably 10 to 15 cases. Mm -hmm. So they so they are doing all of these things um, to with all these other foster families and, and caring for these other children um, who right. need time as well. So that, that is a good reminder for me. Thank you. <laughs> I needed that. Um, so you were a social worker for how long before you became a foster parent? 
Uh, I've been a social worker now for uh, seven years, going on eight years. Okay. I'm flies, man. So yes. I was a social worker probably for at least five to six years before I became a foster parent. Okay. Um, so how, tell me about that transition from being a, just quote, unquote, I have air quotes, just a social worker, because obviously, you know, that's a big job. So, um, two, but now you have two roles. You have the social worker role, um, and then you also have the foster parent role. Um, so will you tell me a little bit about that transition and what spurred that on and that, um, what that looked like for you and your husband, Stephen? Yeah. So I, I mean, I live child welfare 24 seven. I have, um, my foster babies here at home and then I work, you know, 40 out, 40 plus hours a week sometimes, um, in that realm with DSS, but I really couldn't imagine any other way. Um, the transition for me, honestly, we had never parented before. We we chose to be foster parents first as parents. Um, so the adjustment was honestly truly more about just adjusting to parenthood in general for us. Um, and because we never we've never parented a biological child, we don't really know the difference. Um, for us, parenthood comes with court and social worker visits and visitation and CDSA evaluations and all the appointments and pharmacy planning meetings. That's just a normal part of parenthood. Um, and it will be interesting to parent without all those things at some point. Um, but for us, that's just the norm. Uh, one interesting dynamic is that because I work in the field I understand the complexity of cases. Um, I don't, I see all the gray, the murky gray. It's not black and white. Whereas my husband is a very practical thinker and he's, he sees things in black and white. So as foster parents, like this is how it should be. This is happening. We need to do this. And I'm over here trying to explain the system of, well, that's not quite how it works. So that's led to not disagreements, but some coaching for him. Um, and then sometimes, you know, he'll tell me like, no, that's not what is in this child's best interest. So we try to balance each other out there. And then lastly, my big thing has been as a foster parent, my motto to myself has been stay in your lane. Mm. I don't, we joke at Family Builders that the worst foster parents are social workers and therapists because, <laughs> because we have this tendency to want to jump in and, and do it for the foster care worker. And we've been blessed with some good uh, foster care workers for our kids we've had. But that's been my motto is stay in your lane. Um, only advocate if you really feel like there's an issue. But otherwise, let the social worker do their job without them feeling like you're breathing down their neck. It's interesting you talk about parenthood. So we have a similar journey in that, in that um, we were foster parents first. That was our, our first plan for families and seeing where the Lord was, was going to take us on that. So we have in February, February, we will have been foster. We will have been parents for four years. In February, it will be the first time in those four years that we have not had an open foster care case. And so it's almost like I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with myself because the social workers only have to come once every three months instead of once a month. And I'm not emailing about court. And I think I just talked to, I talked to my GAL yesterday and I think it might've been our last court, you know, before adoption. And I'm like, what is this? I don't, I don't know what I'm going to be able to do. Um, I'm sure we will, we will remedy that soon, but um, it is interesting to, to realize that that, is coming to an end soon. Um, now, you talked about that foster parenting for you and Stephen was your first plan, and, and um, for your family, um, did that come from you as a social worker seeing the need, and then feeling like that was um, where you would go in your marriage, or how did that come about? How did y'all decide to become foster parents first? You know, how I got into this career, how I got into being a foster parent, there was never like a decisive moment where those things were decided. I think God has just been leading me um, to this passion probably since before I was even out of high school. 
um, I did my senior project with a social worker. So I was introduced to that realm. Um, then through mission trips, I worked with a lot of vulnerable kids. And actually, most of that work was done overseas in orphanages. Um, and it dawned on me um, that when I was living in Raleigh right after college, the church I was attending um, had a foster care ministry. And it dawned on me, I've been doing all this work with these overseas orphanages, but the need is right here in our community. Um, and at that time, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. You know, I was 22 years old um, and decided to go back to graduate school and get a master's in social work. Um, and I knew going in that if I did that, I was going to work with children in foster care. Somewhere along the way, I also realized, I think seeing examples of other families in that church who were foster parents, somewhere along the way, I realized I also want to be a foster parent one day. So when Stephen and I, on our very first date, um, doing the whole get to know you thing, I said, by the way, I will be a foster parent one day and I probably will adopt. And he said, okay, that's cool. Um, I don't know if he knew what he was signing up for in that moment, but it was just a known from the beginning for us that that was how we were going to do it. Um, we both agreed that's where we were starting with our family and we would see where the Lord leads us. Um, so that's just always been, so it's just been a gradual thing. Um, this is just my life. My life's mission field is how I try to think of it. Um, my work, my role as a foster parent. I love that. That is very much how Luke and I were too. Again, I was the one when we were dating, I was like, I, I want to be a foster parent. Um, and he, he was not there. Um, uh, I think oftentimes we hear that the, the, the female in the relationship is a little bit more like ready to, to do and to go. And it takes some time for the husband or, um, to kind of come alongside and say, okay, I'm ready for this. Um, and so I would encourage those who might be in that spot where, where we're, maybe the wife is like, yes, let's do this. And the husband's like, I'm not ready. Um, first of all, to say you both need to be ready and you both need to be on board with that because it is a partnership you can't be divided on it but two that the lord does change hearts um and so while our first date luke was like eh, i don't really think i want to do that like eventually um and into the first year of our marriage we were kind of ready to start that um and so that's really great it's also interesting that you talk about social work being your calling and, and whether and working with foster kids being your calling um, and that very much is my calling too, but it's cool to see the ways that different mm -hmm. can work in terms of this whole community to make it better. And so I'm not a social worker and I don't have a social worker degree, um, but I have, you know, I'm in, I've been in ministry. My background is ministry and, and, and I can bring that to the table too. And so what I love about that is God uses all people to bring their gifts to um, the table of, of serving kids in foster care. And that's really cool. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to switch from your social worker hat to your foster parent hat. Um, so tell us a little bit about your placements um, as much as you want to. And so we have been licensed with Caldwell County DSS for about two and a half years. Obviously. And that's because you work at Catawba County. And so you, there's right. a conflict of interest. Right. You can't be licensed through the County you work for. So um, we went with Caldwell DSS, um, so two and a half years. We've had five children um, come to our home, um, and I'll go into more detail about them, um, but the two we have currently, um, both now have a primary plan of adoption, so we will be moving towards adoption for both of them. So these two will stay, um, and where our journey will go after that actually is um, a hot topic of conversation in our house. <laughs> We really don't know, um, and we're trying to just rest in the fact that it's okay to not know. So we'll figure it out, or God will lead us where he wants us to go after the adoptions. But um, our first placement was two little boys, um, Graham and Caleb. Um, we got them, let's see, Graham was about two and a half, and Caleb was about 10 or 11 months old. So both in diapers, um, and Graham had um, some needs. Um, some developmental needs. He was pretty delayed. Um, so that was our introduction to parenthood. So one day we were not parents, and the next day we had two boys. 
one with special needs, both in diapers, both nonverbal. Um, it was, it shook our earth <laughs> to the core. So that, that's what I said. It really wasn't fostering. It was just hello parenthood overnight. Insta parent. Um, well, and I always say no matter how long you've parented, the first placement, the first two weeks are the hardest. You feel like you are somewhat drowning for the first. Yes. And then, which is part of why fostering hope says these are the two weeks we really want to focus on and we want to prep you and give you a meal and give you food. And, um, and then after about week two's over and week three, you kind of, all of a sudden you look up and you're like, Oh, I'm not drowning anymore. I'm more like doggy paddling and, you know, swimming. We can do this. But that first placement, when you go from zero children to whatever it is, it was a two-year-old for us. It was two little ones for you. It is hard. It is hard. It's worth it, but it is hard. So keep going. Yes. Um, yeah. And it, regardless of whether you parented before, those first two weeks across the board, people have told us they're just hard. Um, and then when you add in the adjustment to parenthood, I mean, if anyone has ever you know, became a parent, brought a child home from the hospital, you remember that overwhelming feeling. Well, that happens as a foster parent as well. I remember one of my best friends, Sarah, she just let me cry on her shoulder and she just said, there's nothing I can say that will make it better. Parenting is hard and this is, just, you will, you will adjust. Um, and one thing I, misconception I had, I just assumed that when we became foster parents and this child stepped through my threshold, that I would love them instantly. That has not been the case for us, for any of our placements. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm an introvert by nature. Um, so not only do I not, I have to get to know people, including children, before I can love them. So not only do I not know you, I don't love you yet. I'm an introvert and my home is my safe place, my sanctuary. So all of that is just disrupted with the placement. Um, I'm willing to do that because I know it will get better and I know that I can love these children and I know that I'm serving like Jesus, but I have to remind myself, especially those first few weeks of any placement, I'm loving like Jesus because right now I'm not getting anything back from it. I'm going to just give until eventually things settle. Um, so that placement taught me a lot about myself. Um, with I think that's a good point because I think that's a misconception about adoption and foster care is like you meet this child and immediately the bond is amazing. And it's like, no, like you have to learn it. And um, for our first, it took me four months to really bond and finally say, okay, I would like you to stay for longer than, you know, you know, a long time. So um, I would say our second child um, adoption, the word adoption was thrown around the first week and it was, and I bonded to him more quickly because that word was thrown around, but it's a very dangerous word for a foster parent um, because you begin to kind of like attach to that word adoptive when really none of us know how the case is. Um, so anyway, but that's a good myth buster um, is that you're, you immediately bond the moment they walk through your door. Yeah. Um, we'd had those boys for three or four weeks and my family went on a, a week long beach trip. Um, and it was like halfway through that week that I realized I was having fun as a parent for the first time. And it didn't take long from there for that love to truly come. Um, the older of the boys had some attachment issues going on from his neglect. So it took a little bit longer to attach to him. But Caleb, um, he, we attached to him very quickly. He attached to us. And eventually we got there with, with Graham too. But um, So we had them for about eight months. Um, and that, it was a, that was a really hard case. Um, Hindsight's twenty twenty, but um, adoption was being discussed. So we w went to court um, and expecting that day that perhaps the permanent plan would change to adoption and they would stay with us. And we left court with not only did it not change, but they were moving that night to be with their grandparents. Now, at that time, we did not know the grandparents. We did not have a relationship with them. And I wish we would have. Um, 
but we created a relationship after they moved. I still, to this day, and I think their grandparents will reiterate this, they are where they're supposed to be with their grandparents. That's, that is their good forever home. But I wish they had not been moved abruptly like that by the court system. Um, the grandparents agree with that. We should have been able to transition them. But, it, you know, it happened. And I'm glad that they're with their family and where they should be forever. Well, and so you lived through one of the things that is in the back of a foster parent. It's one of their biggest, a foster parent's biggest fear. And often why some people don't become foster parents is because um, you can wake up one day thinking they're going to be adopted by you. And then that night you're packing them up and they're leaving. So tell, tell talk to a little bit about how you and Steven um, emotionally walked through that um, and obviously you've healed from that because you've been able to look back and say, you know, this is where they're supposed to be and you've had more placements. But that, that, I mean, I remember that day very well. And you, it was a very, for even for me, it was a very raw day. Um, and I wasn't the, the foster mom. And so tell us a little bit how you kind of walked through that. So we sat in court that day all day. So literally from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. The judge made that order at like 5.45 that they were, not only was the plan not changing, but they were moving to the grandparents tonight. So we left court at 6 p.m., drove an hour home, and had less than two hours to say goodbye and pack their belongings. I can honestly say that is the most traumatic thing I have ever been through in my life. Um, as an adult, what I consider you know, pretty good coping skills, it was horrible. Um, I don't want to cry, but I had to put those boys into car seats and strap them into these car seats in the back seat of a stranger's car and watch as they drove away. And that will haunt me forever. And there was a lot of tears. I just sat in their room and cried. Um, Stephen and I, we just took off. We just took off. We went to Virginia, got a hotel room, and spent a lot of time um, with our dog and hiking and being in nature. And I was very angry. I was very angry for a while. I was angry at God. Um, I was angry at the system. I was angry at that particular judge that I, I think made a horrible call. Um, and that night, I remember Stephen saying, we're done. We, were, we will not do this again. This system is, is lost. Um, but with time, as anger subsided um, and we got, we were able to communicate with the grandparents and they allowed us to see the boys um, a few weeks later. And I saw how well they were doing and thriving with the grandparents. That really helped. Um, and I was able to compartmentalize that just like in any profession there are going to be judges that are not that great um there may be social workers that you encounter that are not the best and there's going to be great ones um i can't brush off an entire system with all these children who need homes because of one bad experience so I've been able to compartmentalize that. And after a few weeks, we took a few weeks off. We did a lot of camping and traveling. Um, we finally came back to the realization of, yes, we're frustrated with this particular situation. But now we've lived in this world. We know the need firsthand for foster families. We can't just walk away. Um, you know, what else are we going to do? We can't just walk away. So. We took a break. Our worker honored us <laughs> in our break. Her, I think her heart broke for us as well, our licensing worker. So um, took that much needed break. Um, and, came. and I think I have heard a lot of people who, when a, when a placement dissolves, reunification, whatever, they go away like you talked about. And I think part of that is the reality that you're not the only one grieving. Your community also grieves. Um, and but you don't want to face your community in that moment it's like you need to, you as a the foster parents need to heal and have that space apart 
Um, and then you're able to come back and breathe with your community because your community loves these children too. Um, and so I think that's, I've heard lots of people say like, we just leave, we, we have to get away and, and not have to, and to grieve yourselves before other, you walk with other people through grief. Yes. Um, we, I couldn't imagine being with my, I love my family and they're a huge support for us. I could not carry my own grief and see their grief. Um, I couldn't go to church. Um, so many in our church have supported us and they love those boys. And I just couldn't go to church that Sunday. So going away was the best decision for us. But I am glad you brought up the grief of your, of your, of your village because it, it broke the hearts of our family members. It broke the hearts of our church and our friends. Um, you know, my parents, Stephen's mom, um, the aunts, the uncles, um, and my nieces and nephew, God, they were, they still miss those boys to this day. So it, it was, it was hard for, for everyone involved. And that's one lesson I learned through all that is, we signed up to be foster parents, but everybody else kind of gets drug along for the ride. Yeah. They want to or not. So yes, we signed up knowingly that we could have our hearts broken, but I didn't realize how much I was putting our village in the line of fire as well. Right. Well, and I think another piece of the grief for you too, I remember these conversations um, was that you knew that the boys would be really confused. Like it was grief for you, but it was also grief for those boys who didn't have closure and who would go to sleep that night asking for you. And that was going to be the second time that they had kind of had that abrupt bullying. And so just lots of different levels that, that is the reality of, of the hard, the hardness of foster care. Um, yes. But you kept doing it. You, you <laughs> there was, there's still a need. Um, and so um, eventually you got another placement. Yes. So we ended up taking about two months off break. Um, then we got called about Anna, who was an 11 year old girl, um, just significant trauma in her, in her history. She came to our home and she'd never um, been in care before. This was her first placement. So they didn't really know a lot about her. Um, she was with us for three weeks. So when she came to us, we pretty quickly realized she had some pretty significant needs um, that were pretty out of out of our realm of um, experience and expertise and comfort. So we worked with her social worker very closely. I'm so thankful she had a great social worker who we worked to get her assessed um, clinically we were able to get a recommendation for therapeutic foster care. So tell us what the difference between the two, like what's the difference between you and a therapeutic home? Yes. So we're a regular level foster homes. Most foster homes probably are therapeutic foster care are more experienced foster parents who've then gone through additional training to handle children. Um, in order to qualify for therapeutic foster care, you have to have at least one mental health diagnosis. The child does. Wow, yes. So the foster parents uh, just have more experience, more training. They also get more support. Um, they're only, uh, so therapeutic foster parents are usually licensed with private agencies. So instead of getting a monthly support from a social worker, they're getting um, weekly support. So to help manage that child. And Catawba County does not license therapeutic homes. No. Um, I actually can't, we used to, but I, we stopped that a few years ago and I don't know of any counties that license therapeutic now. So there's just a lot involved, a lot of requirements with Medicaid. That's just a lot for a county to take on. So usually almost always that's going to be a private agency. Um, so her social worker um, helped us get her assessed pretty quickly, get a recommendation for a therapeutic foster home and she was able to leave and go to a family that had a lot of experience. Um, and last I heard, I think she had moved um, a little bit more after that, but she had some pretty significant needs. So I, I still pray for her and hope wherever she is that um, she's found a, a family that can, can help meet her needs. 
Well, and I think that's important to realize too, is that um, sometimes a kid comes into our care and we realize that, that we are not the family to, to um, meet their needs, whether that is a, a foster family whose, child, whose child's plan becomes adoption and we realize that we are not the forever family that will, will um, meet their needs or a child has more um, and needs a, more of a therapeutic kind of lens uh, our foster family um, and we are not the, the family and with much prayer and conversation with with social workers and a plan it's okay to say we are not the family for this child um, at the moment. yes our goal with her honestly during those three weeks was to keep her stable and keep her safe that that was it um you know kind of back to the basics like that was what she needed just a safe place and so we provided that and I hopefully gave her a glimpse of what it could be like to be in a family but ultimately we knew she needed more than what we could give I, I knew she needed a family with parenting experience for her age range you know um, we'd only parented for eight months total uh, and those were young kids so with diapers <laughs> yeah so taking on an 11 year old with needs like that like I was like I'm not giving you what you need at this point so um but that was I mean actually was ended up being a good experience we learned a lot and DSS really helped helped us with that so after Anna um went moved to a new home what happened next so she left towards the I think the end of March the beginning of April um we had already scheduled a cruise for our anniversary so we decided we'd wait until we got back um to go back on the list so it was june 11th we got the call for little tyler a three and a half year old boy um he came to our home and he has been with us ever since so he's been with us for over 18 months i believe um he's almost five now um we worked reunification um, with his mom, did a lot of shared parenting. Um, unfortunately, reunification was not successful. Um, so even as we move towards adoption, um, his mom is still, we're still connected with her. Um, always will be. I always want to maintain that connection. I think that's what's best for him um, and hopefully can love on her and be a support as much as we can whatever is healthy for him is our goal so but she'll always be um, in our family a part of our family as well um and then so we had him for like eight or nine months something like that um, and then got the call at the beginning of april of this year in the middle of the pandemic for uh, baby nicole um, she um, had been born pretty premature and had been in the NICU for a few weeks. So we were, I was actually able to go to the NICU and bring her home. So because of the pandemic, it just had to be me. So, um, and that has been such a blessing. Um, you know, I said I didn't love any of my kids from day one, but I think I loved her by day two. Um, it's just, you know, with a newborn, you, I, and I've seen the research, there's actually a hormonal shift in you. Whether you're in a biological parent, a foster parent, or adoptive parent, the hormonal changes that happen with a newborn are the same. So um, when we got our newborn, mm -hmm. I, I texted to somebody who is a, a nurse practitioner and said, is it possible for me to breastfeed? Because I, that hormone was, I, I was so, like, I felt like I could because the hormones were just so real and yes in my body and so I was like have you ever heard of this and obviously he was in foster care so I wasn't going to get into all of that but it was just like this is the weirdest thing to be to feel it in my body just as much as I you know so yes and I said that I had that same sensation it was so strong um so she has been with us ever since she is the sweetest little ray of sunshine wonderful personality that's coming out she's starting to talk um she now can say hey diddy it's not daddy dd and daddy is wrapped around her little finger oh and her plan changed to adoption as well so 
Um, we'll be adopting her and Tyler hopefully next year. Um, getting a baby in the midst of a pandemic was a blessing and tough at the same time. It was a blessing because I was working from home, fully at home at that point. Um, pretty much never went to the office. And because she was a newborn, she couldn't go to daycare for six weeks. So I was able to keep her at home for those first two months, actually, of her life full time. Um, and because she was a preemie, she slept all the time. So I had her at home, cared for her, worked full time. Um, I just worked weird hours. I worked a lot of nights because <laughs> she was sleeping. But um, so that was a blessing because we could never have said yes to her placement otherwise because of her not being able to go to daycare. So. Um, but it also has been hard because you don't get to have all the, all the typical newborn experiences. I mean, you don't really get, we didn't take her to church to show her off to all of our church family until she was like five months old or something like that. So, um, different experience, but it's been a blessing to have that I was able to have that time at home with her. That has been, you know, a lot of people ask like, do you get a maternity leave or paternity leave? And it depends on each case and who you work for and your employer. And um, with the reality of foster care, you know, when we got our newborn, I went to work on Monday morning, came home and there was a newborn and, you know, it was just, there's just not a lot of time. Um, but that is, I, I could have taken a maternity leave and that's one of my biggest regrets is not taking a maternity Not because I couldn't do it, but because those days are gone and I'll never get those newborn days back. But I'm really grateful that, one of the blessings of a pandemic of for you um, and having a pandemic baby um, was that you got to have those snuggles um, and to be home with her. Yes. So what um, is one of the biggest surprises, one of the biggest surprise blessings of fostering that you've had? I think just joy from the simple progress that you see. Um, so with Tyler, um, you know, he, he had some needs from some things he had gone through. And when you see him reach a milestone, when you see him be able to stop and identify his feelings and work through that instead of acting out, or um, when he first came to us, he felt the need to be constantly engaged with you, like, he did not want to be alone. He wanted to be talking to you, engaged with you at all times. And in his experience, bad things can happen if you're not engaged with your caregiver. So, um, and now he can go play by himself quietly. He is comfortable with quiet time if needed. And just being able to see the security and his attachment with us grow ha has been great. Um, it really is just those simple things that you realize, wow, like he's made a lot of progress or, um, and seeing the attachment with Nicole um, is, is just beautiful. Um, when you walk into the daycare to pick her up and she like lights up, like that's just so sweet. That's just a typical parenting joy. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you'd want to share today? Um, so one thing, because I do this dual role, foster parent and social worker, um, one thing that I really try to do now is advocate for both sides. And mm -hmm. I have a great position to do that because now I'm a licensing social worker. So I'm working with foster, adoptive, and kinship families. Um, so when we're in meetings um, and someone says something, you know, not only are there misperceptions about foster care in general, but I think sometimes people have misperceptions about, about foster parents. So I will very... I'm very quick to speak up um, and try to offer the perspective of a foster parent because most social workers do not understand what it is like to live the life of a foster parent and have these kids in your home 24 seven. They have no control over it. You know, we right. they, you know, they may have these kids with them a, a few hours tops atop a month. Um, they, they don't know what that's like. And then also they don't understand that when you're a foster parent, you have a, essentially 100% control of this child and keeping them alive and healthy and growing and thriving. And you have 0% control of the outcome. And that's hard. It's hard mentally and emotionally, spiritually. 
Um, so I Especially re- when you sit in court and you realize, you look around and you say, I am the only one up at three in the morning with this child. And yet I have no, no say in any of what happens, which mm-hmm. is the, we'll talk about this at another podcast, but it's the important part of a guardian ad litem, but also an important part of, of some, someone like you who has both perspectives. Yeah. So I really do try to advocate, but I also will advocate some of the families that I serve as a licensing worker. I also advocate for the social workers because most foster parents don't understand what it's like to be, you know, a Department of Social Services social worker and the huge pressure that our workers are under and the caseloads they have and the how hard it is to follow all the crazy state policies. I mean, there's just so many rules and policies you have to follow to juggle the workload and the pressure and the responsibility. It, it can be overwhelming. So I try to advocate for both sides um, and maybe bring light to what the other side might be going through. And I haven't been through everything and I don't, I don't know all the answers, but I try to, try to advocate for each of the sides when I can. Which is a great gift that you have um, by having this dual role um, for both social workers and foster parents and ultimately the well-being of the kid and the child in care. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I always enjoy talking to you. You know, I could talk for hours, Um, (laughs) but tell me a fun, happy, funny story um maybe something your kids did or something funny that before we end i have a funny story just a i guess a a joyful story so when we got um nicole we only had a day's notice okay and tyler had always been the only child so of course that was a concern on the funny even in even in birth family he was the only child correct Okay. The funny thing is, two days before we got the call about Nicole, he told me he wanted a baby, and I laughed at him. And then they called that they had a baby. So, um, but I told him in language that he would understand that Nicole's birth parents could not take care of her right now, and the judge was asking us to bring Nicole home and keep her safe. And he understood that, and he accepted it. I mean, yes, there's been jealousy. I mean, that's typical. But he has never questioned why she's with us. He fully understands, I think, what that means, that foster care role. And to see their relationship, he loves her so much. And she thinks he is just the greatest thing in the world and lights up. I truly believe that he is her favorite person, not not me or Steven, that he, that Tyler, is her favorite person in the world. Um, and just watching them together and full acceptance of her by him. I just thought that was the sweetest thing. Um, and he takes his role of big brother very seriously. The other day she fell and hit her head. She was sitting and just fell backwards and just bumped her head. And she cried for like, seriously, like two seconds. He came running to her, even though I was sitting right there and handling it. He came running across the room and was petting her head. And he was saying, dry your tears, dry your tears. It will be okay. It will be okay. I'm here. And it was just the sweetest thing. Um, and I feel like him accepting her and loving her and caring for her the way he has is probably the, the most beautiful depiction of the love of Jesus that you could see. Yeah. So give it to a child to really show what that love is all about. Yeah. Something about kids in care, they just get it. That when we, when another kid needs to, some people ask me like, you have kids who come in and out. How does you, how does your adopted child deal with that? And um, I mean, we we are very clear to her that like they may be here and gone, but you're staying forever. But it's always about that. They need a safe home, and it's something about just her understanding. Like they need a safe home, and we're gonna give them a safe home for two weeks, a month, whatever. Um, you know our our the little boy we're adopting now um he went a year we was here for a year and we kept telling her like we don't know if he's staying forever but we're gonna give him a safe home and she just gets it and it's just a again like what a way for the children to lead us um when oftentimes we're worried about them and the way that they're gonna react 
Um, so I love that. Um, I love that about Tyler and his acceptance and love. So, well, my friend, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, and I am glad that we got to have it. And, but more importantly, that we get to be friends and we get to serve in this, um, this journey of foster care in the, the ways that the Lord has gifted us um, together. So thank you for being with me. Yes, thanks for having me. This has been Friends of Foster Care, a podcast of Fostering Hope Catawba. Today's guest was Megan Burns. Please visit us at www dot fosteringhopecatawba dot com